I'll invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're moving into chapter 4 today. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first seven verses, but I do want to uh, back up and just read starting in chapter 3, verse 23. Uh, We start a new chapter, but the reasoning just continues to build off of what has come before. And uh, so we could go right back to the beginning, but we'll... uh, discipline ourselves and just go to verse 23 and we'll read through to chapter 4 verse 11 so Galatians 3 starting in verse 23 now before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I remember quite a few years ago, uh, a pastor was asked what the most difficult doctrine was to believe. And if you think about that question, there's probably a number of doctrines and and, and issues in Scripture that might come to mind. Uh, We might immediately think of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how that uh, fits together. Uh, Maybe we might think of the eternality of hell. Uh, That's certainly a heavy consideration. Or perhaps uh, intellectually speaking, it's something like the Trinity. It's not an easy matter to get our our heads around. His answer, however, was none of these things. And his answer caught me a little bit by surprise. He said that the most difficult doctrine to believe was grace. The most difficult doctrine to believe was God's grace toward him. And when he said that, it caught me a little off guard. But at the same time, it also made complete sense. And I think that any believer who has awareness, some grasp of God's holiness, and a believer who has also 
a sensitivity, a measure of sensitivity to their ongoing sinfulness will at times wrestle and struggle with God's grace. Can it really be that good? Can it really be that God has blessed me with the greatest treasures and blessings of salvation completely apart from anything worthy in me? In fact, in spite of my utter and complete unworthiness, purely because he purposed to do so of his own free grace and kindness, desiring to magnify his own goodness and mercy in the saving of a wretched sinner who had nothing to offer and could do nothing of her own. Can, can it really be that good? Because it sounds too good. It really does sound too good. To, be, to go from deserving of God's just eternal wrath to being raised up to be an heir of all things in Christ Jesus. It sounds too good, but this is precisely, this grace is precisely what Paul is seeking to uphold and to set before us throughout this letter to the Galatians. We saw last week at the end of chapter 3 how it is that we are united to Christ by faith in him and thereby are made sons of God. We are heirs, inheritors, according to promise. And that this is not the result of our law-keeping and our making ourselves in any way acceptable. It's not a loan that we have to pay back or something like that. It is simply a gracious gift that God gives received by faith. And as we come to chapter 4 now, Paul continues to develop this. He continues to explain this reality of our adoption into God's family. Adoption... Is one, of these, is one of the graces of salvation that we have by faith. It is one of the graces that we have on account of being united to Christ by faith. Uh, we are justified by faith, and we have talked much about justification in this letter in, the, in Galatians. We are justified by faith. We are also adopted through that faith. Our status becomes that of a son. Joel Beakey writes, While justification by faith in Christ alone is the foundational blessing of union with Christ, adoption in Christ may be the highest blessing of all. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This, this is, I think, one of those realities that can be difficult to believe. That we are sons, that we are adopted into God's family by God's grace, simply through believing it is something that can be difficult to truly believe that that is true of us, and yet this is a reality and a truth that is full of help and is full of encouragement for us. And our text teaches us this. 
It shows us that if you are in Christ Jesus by faith, then God Almighty has adopted you, giving you the full rights and privileges of a son by redeeming you from slavery to sin and its curse. This is what we're going to look at as we work through verses 1 to 7. And so our outline for this, we're going to look at first the condition of slavery in verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to look at the redeeming God, verses 4 and 5, the first part of verse 5. And then thirdly, the adoption as sons, which will be the last part of verse 5 through verse 7. So let's begin by looking at the condition of slavery. So verse 1, Paul continues, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul lays out here an analogy for us. A child may indeed be an heir, he'll inherit everything, but until such time as the child comes of age, which was determined by the father, Paul says here, there is really no external difference between that child and other household slaves and servants. The child would exist under the hierarchy of household managers and guardians. And so that child might be the rightful heir, but until the time of their maturity, until the time that they inherit, they're under the authority of various others within that very household, uh, not unlike the other slaves. That's the situation. That's what Paul's saying. And then he applies this in verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul applies that analogy to Israel's time under the Mosaic Covenant. So he is further explaining what we covered last time. Uh, Go back to verse 19, but for sure, verses 23 to 29. I mean, that's how verse 1 says, I mean that. So he's continuing to explain it. And so if we, in these verses we're looking at, again, follow the pronouns, which we we talked about last time as well. Uh, When Paul says we, he is speaking of himself and the Jews. As a nation, under the Mosaic Covenant, the Jews were like a child, he is saying, who was no different than a slave. Their time under the Mosaic Covenant was, as he already said, as we've seen, an imprisonment. It was a confinement. The law was a guardian. It was a manager over them. The promise of the Christ, that Christ would come, that the Redeemer would come, it had been made. It was given to them. The Redeemer would come from Abraham's line. But they were being prepared for that time. The nation, the the people were in a a stage of infancy, Paul is saying. Their sin was being restrained during this time under the law. And it was being further revealed and clarified under the Mosaic Covenant. Paul says they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world while under that covenant. Elementary principles, is that's a, a translation of a single Greek word. It's a word that's debated to its precise meaning here. Uh, 
If you were around back when we went through Colossians, we did talk a little bit about that in chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, we're not going to get into all of that now, but I think what this is getting at is the fact that the Mosaic Covenant in its it, it, the Mosaic Covenant itself dealt with externals and did not renovate the heart. It pointed toward the need for heart circumcision, but it didn't accomplish that. Instead, Paul's saying it left the people enslaved. So if we take the nation as a whole, the Mosaic Covenant didn't bring about, didn't accomplish their eternal salvation. It kept them rather, as we've seen, confined under the law. It kept them under this law that they could not keep. They were imprisoned. Paul used the language of enslaved here. It revealed, ultimately, that in their nature, though they possessed the Word of God, the law of God even, they were, in the end, no better than the Gentiles in their nature. And obviously, as we consider the Old Testament, there were many within Israel who saw this, who understood this, who were uh, trusting God for His grace and for His mercy, they were believing that God would send this individual to come and to deal with their sins. Paul has been saying this is true of, was true of Abraham. In, in Romans, Paul uh, also refers to David as speaking of one who was rejoicing in being uh, counted righteous apart from works. In Psalm 32, he quotes Psalm 32 about the blessedness of being forgiven their sins. David believed, David understood these things. But the covenant itself and the nation as a whole left the people in bondage. It didn't provide salvation. That's why Jeremiah 31 is pointing ahead to a new covenant that would come in which it would actually bring with it for all of its members salvation and a knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God and the law of God being written on the heart. And so what Paul's doing here in the beginning of chapter 4 is just further explaining the imprisonment the people experienced under the Mosaic Covenant, which he's been describing going back to verse 19 of chapter 3. And so what this is saying then is that in the end, the Mosaic Covenant reveals to us that it's not just Gentile pagans who were enslaved to sin and its curse. Of course they were. Of course the Gentile nations were enslaved to sin. But so too, we find, was Israel. And, and the, the, the Sinai covenant helps to reveal this. So if we think about this in terms of Paul's broader argument in Galatians, why is he talking about this? Well, the Judaizers are saying that the Gentile, that Gentiles need to come under the Mosaic covenant in order to be saved. And Paul is arguing here and demonstrating and showing that really that would just be a sideways move to another type of slavery. And he's saying because we were enslaved when we were under that covenant. It didn't accomplish salvation for us. So if you're going to take these enslaved Gentiles and just move them over here, you're just, it's a sideways move. It would just put them right back under enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. 
The very thing that these Galatian Gentile believers have escaped through faith in Christ. The Judaizers would put them back under that. No, no, you've got to also keep these laws here to truly be saved. The Bible's teaching is that all mankind has fallen in Adam and is enslaved to sin and to Satan. The law of God serves to reveal this all the more as it functions like a mirror revealing the true condition of our own souls. And the Mosaic Covenant was not put in place to fix the problem. Rather, it further reveals the problem while pointing ahead to the one who would come and fix the problem. The condition of man is indeed a helpless one, one that we cannot fix and overcome on our own. No obedience, no effort is going to do it. Scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins so long as we are in Adam. We are born at enmity with God, hostile to him in our minds. There are none who does do good, none righteous. This is the condition of slavery that mankind faces. And of course, this is true in the days of the old covenant. This is true in Paul's day in the first century, and it remains true today. This is, this is why we see the kind of crazy that we see going on in our world around us. It's because of man's enslavement to sin. And so this is, while it might take new forms to us that surprise us sometimes, at the end of the day, there is nothing ultimately surprising about it. This is the condition of slavery. Secondly, the redeeming God. Paul has outlined the enslavement of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Then in verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Israel's time under the law was an appointed season. And likewise, the coming of Christ was an appointed season. The fullness of time is a phrase that highlights God's sovereignty in choosing the time. It is a God-ordained timing to this. When the right time had come, according to God himself, when this time came to end the guardianship of the Mosaic Covenant and to send the long-awaited offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, God did indeed send his Son. There's a lot in verse 4, even, that we could consider. We'll move through it relatively quickly, but that it says there that God, the Father, sent forth his Son, reveals the Son's pre-existence, and it implies his deity. The Son was sent forth. He was not created. He did not come into existence at conception, nor did he come into existence at birth. It is, as John 
One says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just as John 1 goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so also Galatians 4.4 4 says that he was born of a woman. God sent forth his eternal Son, and he was born of a woman. He is true God, and he is true man. He took to himself a human nature. And so he is truly the son of God. He is truly the son of Abraham, the offspring of the woman, born of Mary, the physical descendant of Abraham that had been promised. He is the son of David according to the flesh. And we're told he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was born... As a Jew, obviously, he was born under the Mosaic Covenant. He was a true child of Abraham. He was born under the law, we're told, to redeem those who were under the law. To, to redeem means to liberate by purchase. To liberate by purchase. Jesus came to purchase and thereby liberate and free those who were under the law. Which again is Paul indicating that this was an enslavement of sorts. There was a, a, a confinement and an imprisonment that Jesus came to redeem his people from. So this was God's purpose and plan in sending his son to redeem sinners from enslavement by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession of the eternal son made man. One challenge in the wording here is that it might seem as if Paul is only talking about what Christ has done for the Jews. Uh, if he came under the law to redeem those who were under the law, the Mosaic Covenant, then what about those who weren't under the law as the Jews were? Is that different or is it the same kind of redemption or is he just talking what's Happening here. Well, again, I think what he's doing is he's making the argument that if the Jews who had the word of God were in fact in bondage under the, the law, and if the Son of God was sent for their redemption, how much more is it the case that the Gentiles are needing the same redemption since they are clearly enslaved as well to sin? In fact, he'll say, in verse 8 of the Galatians, you are no longer a slave in Christ, which means they likewise were also enslaved at one time. Again, both Jew and Gentile alike were enslaved. Verse 9, he'll also reference the Galatians' own former slavery to the elementary principles of the world. So he's putting everybody here, Paul is, on equal footing. Everybody, Jew, Gentile alike, were enslaved. ultimately to sin. So again, the point seems to be that if even Israel was enslaved and in need of redemption, and that redemption comes through faith in Christ Jesus, how much more are the Gentiles also in need of this redemption? And then to try to make them then come under the Mosaic Covenant as the Judaizers were is to miss the point of that covenant and to misunderstand the gospel. Again, it does not make sense then to try to, to say to these 
enslaved Gentiles, you have to now come under this law over here if that law, the Mosaic Covenant, is itself a slavery. Everybody is enslaved to sin. Everybody needs redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. And that comes only through faith in him, not through obedience to any law. As we think about Gentile nations, those who weren't under the Mosaic Covenant, Paul also makes it clear in in the book of Romans in chapter 2 that even Gentiles who don't have the law of God written in stone like the Jews did with the Sinai Covenant, when Gentiles do by nature what the law of God requires, they prove that the moral law of God is written on their hearts. So again, all mankind is under law in one way or another. Whether it thunders at them from Sinai, is written on stone, or whether their conscience is the one accusing them for doing what they know to be wrong. So while he is certainly, Paul, talking about the redemption of those who are under the Mosaic Covenant, this work of Christ is equally necessary for everyone else. And I think that is clearly implied, and we'll see that uh, even as we get especially into verse 6, and then next time as well as we get into verses 8 and on. It is remarkable that the God against whom we have grievously sinned, whose law we have violated, would redeem sinners from our slavery to sin, would purchase us back, and that he would do that through the sending of his own Son to take our place, to purchase our salvation with his own life's blood. Christ was born under the law, and he kept it perfectly. Not just the external ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant, but the moral law of God in its absolute perfection. And he has done this on behalf of those that he has come to save. In Adam we all die, but in Christ so shall all be made alive. Christ is the true and better Adam who has obeyed. And it is this righteousness that he has secured that becomes ours through faith. And so we have the slavery of mankind, but we also have the redeeming God. And it's important for us to just keep in mind, God is indeed judge and he is king, but he is also a redeeming God. This is the good news that we have to the world. I think there is a a temptation, a fleshly temptation, as we think about God's justice and his kingship. In fact, I was talking to um, Kevin St. John earlier this week, and we were just talking about some of the things going on just in broadly evangelical circles and some of the renewed emphasis on Christ's kingship and how, of course, this is important and necessary. And many have struggled uh, over the last few years as many have uh, given to Caesar that which really ultimately does belong to God. And many need to realize that there is the king 
who is above all earthly authorities to whom we answer and who is above whatever authorities, uh, earthly authorities might be over us. And yet at the same time, as we remember and maybe recover even a, a good understanding of Christ's kingship, the importance of remembering, this was Kevin's point, that Christ is also our priest. He's a priest. He does not just thunder, do my will or else. But he has come and he has secured redemption in his own life's blood. And this is good news that we publish to the world. He is king, yes, and he is saving and redeeming king. He is gracious and he bids sinners come to him. All who are weary that we might find rest. And we dare not lose that. Let's move to the, to the third point here. The adoption as sons. Verse 5 says that God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law. And the purpose of that is given so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son to purchase sinners out of slavery so that he might make them his adopted sons. It is not simply a paying of debt and a rescuing from slavery and then sending us on our way, best of luck in the future. It is paying the debt, rescuing us from slavery, and then bringing us into his house and making us heirs of all that he has. This is why... John Murray, theologian, said that uh, adoption is the apex and epitome of grace. When someone asks us for our forgiveness, we might say, all forgiven, all good, don't worry about it. It's as if it didn't happen, we're going to just let it go. It's as if there's no offense. But God goes beyond this. Not only has he paid the price for that, that that sin deserves. He doesn't just say, we're even now. He, he, he brings us into his house. Makes us heirs. Makes us family. As we talked about last week, this involves a change of status. Adoption is not a long process for God. It is an act of God. It is instantaneous upon faith and union with Christ. Just as justification is an instant thing, once for all, and not a, a, a long process that occurs over time, so too is sonship, adoption, an instant matter, an act. We are sons upon faith in Christ. And Paul makes very clear here, he's not just talking again about the benefits for Israel. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, you Galatian Christians, Jew, Gentile alike, slave, free, male, female. And there's more to the blessing. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are made sons, and we are given the very Spirit of God, who, 
according to verse 8, or Romans 8, is also called the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I think that's what Paul means here. It is by the Spirit's indwelling presence that we are enabled to believe and have confidence that we are sons of God and approach God. So as Romans 8 says in verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As we read in Ephesians 1, the spirit's Presence with us is the down payment of our future inheritance as sons. Again, in chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says here that we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the translation, transliteration of the Aramaic word for father. Jesus called God, Abba, Father, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, when he was praying in the garden, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, what I will, but what you will. This may well be where Paul gets this phrase from when he says we cry, Abba, Father, from the fact that Jesus prayed and cried, Abba, Father. And if this is the case, then he is telling us again that we come to the Father just as Jesus did. Again, indicating full rights of sonship. The term Abba may well also be expressing a term of endearment, but... I think this gets overplayed. Uh, I think many rightly dispute whether daddy uh, appropriately captures it. Um, it is not simply a, a word that a child would use for their father. I even heard a grown man once pray da to daddy God, and uh, that was weird. And I, I don't think that's really what this is saying we should do, just say daddy. Uh, this is This is a... It was not simply a child's word. It was a familial term, but it was a term that an adult would have used for their father as well. So again, I think the greater significance is that this is saying we approach God as father, even as or like Jesus himself did. This is what adoption permits. We are welcome to go to our Heavenly Father. Verse 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, adoption as sons is directly linked to being an heir. It's directly linked to inheritance. And the inheritance is nothing less than the fullness of salvation's blessings that Christ has earned. And we are yet, as we read in Ephesians 1, 
awaiting to take full possession of it. It is ours now by faith. It truly is ours. Peter says it's being kept for us in heaven undefiled. Jesus used the language of going to prepare a place for us. It is there. It is really truly ours. But it's ours by faith right now. We believe it is ours. But one day we will receive full possession of it. And we will do this because God has been pleased in his grace to give this to sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith that we are made sons of God. And again, this can be difficult to believe that, that we would truly inherit eternity that we would truly inherit glory, dwell in the new creation with God Almighty, simply because God in his grace decided to grant it to you. Despite complete unworthiness. And yet this is what the Bible teaches us. In Christ, if you believe in Christ Jesus... You are no longer a slave, this says, but you are a son, a free son who is loved by your heavenly father. No, it's not because you are so lovable. But because God has acted in his grace to redeem you and to make you his son whom he loves. And to give to you an eternal inheritance, the fullness of glory that is to come. How often you might feel like we are those whom God must merely tolerate on account of our many sins. It can become difficult. We can become worn down. The years go by and we continue to struggle with our sin. You think, truly, if I'm going to get in, it's going to be by the hair of my head, and he's gonna, the Lord's going to be shaking his head, fine, come in. That's how we think of it often. But that is not what the Bible's saying. That's not what this text is saying. You are sons of God by faith. This is your status now and forevermore. It is not something you've yet to attain through your efforts and works. It is not something we could ever earn. It is freely and graciously given by God out of his benevolence. And can it be, we sing this and ask this question, it can be because God Almighty has said this is the way it is. And this is how gracious and kind and good and benevolent he is. 
What more is there to add to this? There's nothing to add to this. We don't try to shore up that redemption. We have to simply believe in Christ Jesus. We continue to believe in Christ Jesus. So behold the sufficiency of the salvation that is granted by faith in him alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we read these words, and in one sense they're not that difficult to understand. But Father, our our sins are so many and great. When we consider your law and what you have instructed us about in, in your word, that it is a reflection of your very perfection. How dramatically we fall short of this, even when we don't know it, when we are having what we see as our best day and maybe is our best day, we still fall short. Father, I pray that you would cause us, though, to absolutely confess those sins, but to do so confident in your kindness in Christ Jesus. That you would free us of any legal spirit, that we would rejoice in all that is ours by grace. And you are just that gracious and kind to us. Father, that we would believe that we are your sons, heirs, that all this is accomplished by you. Father, strengthen us with these truths. Father, if anyone here would be playing fast and loose with sin and would like to claim an easy believism and doesn't have any real sense of the severity of their sinfulness, I pray that you would convict them of it. That you would burn away any license we would, anyone would try to take from the gospel. But Father, that we would also be freed from legalism and that constant sense of we need to clean up in order to be able to come to you and have any rights or access to you. Father, free us from that. I pray that this would be to our joy. Father, forgive us where we are downcast all the time. When that, when, that, when that happens, when we go through these seasons, Father, we look to you to lift our heads. Truly, we are weak and in need of your help every day. Father, we pray that you would just show yourself mighty and kind to us. Help us to believe these truths that we see and to draw comfort from them, even as we think about our wayward society and world around us, that we would not be fearful as we wonder what is coming around the bend for us. Father, that we would be confident that we indeed are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, that we might forsake the riches of this earth 
and gladly bear the reproach of Christ, understand that to be far greater riches and look ahead to, the, to eternity. Father, I pray that you would just do the necessary work in our souls, in our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.